invite you to take your scriptures, if you would, again, and turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1. This is our last installment, as it were, in our series on holiness for dummies. We've looked at, really, our key phrase is, be holy for I am holy. And it takes place four times in the book of Leviticus. And only once outside of that, in, it's in the New Testament, and that's in the passage that we've read together this morning. In light of that, and thinking of how Leviticus has the most of them, and then First Peter, which is many hundreds and hundreds, yet thousands of years later, we have a couple things I just want to start off and uh, think about this phrase a little bit more deeply. Number one being, holiness is always needed or relevant. I think if you had all we had was that phrase maybe in Leviticus, you might think that somehow holiness is antiquated, that it's outdated, it's out of style, that it's something uh, that was true a long time ago and days gone by. But I would tell you that holiness is not something that's culturally or socially determined. It's something that's God-determined. And so holiness this morning is just as relevant as it is today, today as it was back in First Peter and even more so in Leviticus. And secondly, holiness is not just a list of things that we do or don't do. I hope you've got that by the time we get through this series, that you realize it's not just a list, it's not a set of rules. It's really about who we are as God's people. And we do what we do, and we obey certain things, and we have activities because of our identity. So when he says, be holy for I am holy, those are identity statements. Um, That's who we are. We are God's holy people because he's a holy God. And 1 Peter is all about that. And we don't have time to develop it all this morning. But 1 Peter, if you read it in its entirety, is all about living out God-given identity. And the key is, as it would be for us, is living out your God-given identity in a very unholy world. In fact, in First Peter, and maybe more so in our day in America becoming this way, is that it's a hostile world. In other words, doing holy has to flow out of being holy. This is not a series about you pasting or, or, or kind of nailing on things to the outside of your life without changing on the inside. No, it's a whole different thing. It's becoming who you are. Um, when I was, my kids were growing up, I would often tell them that you're a walker. That's who you are. Therefore, we don't do that. And so we don't go there. We don't act that way. We don't talk like that. We, we, this is the manners that we have. These, you know why? Because of who you are. And perhaps you did that with your children. And, and, and God does that with his children. He wants to say, here's who you are. You are my holy child. You are my holy people. And therefore, you should be a certain way in the way that you live your life in every single area. And so he starts out, First Peter, if you look in chapter 1 and verse 1, and then also put your finger there if you have to turn the page in chapter 2 and verse 11, he's going to give us a very particular and specific identity. And I'm going to spend a few minutes, a couple minutes on it, because you're not going to get holiness in 1 Peter unless you have a framework about who you are. Here's what he says, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, underline this, to those who are elect exiles. You see that? He's going to reiterate that in chapter 2 and verse 11. Let me read that also. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and, there it is again, 
exiles. That's who we are. You will not understand why we are to live holy, why we are to be different, if you do not understand how God views who you are. We are exiles. Let me tell you what that means spiritually. Spiritually, we are not spiritual immigrants, right? We are not coming to live permanently in a foreign country. That's not our identity. Our identity is not that we are spiritual tourists. If you've ever been to another country and you've visited sites and stuff, I've been to Israel and many other places as well, probably like you have. And when you go there, you're going to go back home eventually and you're just really there for a short time seeing the highlights and some of the sites. Spiritually, that's not who we are. We're not spiritual immigrants. We're not spiritual tourists. We are spiritual exiles. You know what an exile is? Is that we permanently belong somewhere else. And the place that we are living now is what, where we live temporarily. It's not really our home. And we don't belong here. We don't fit in here. There's something different. And we used to sing the song when I was growing up, the old chorus, This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And, and you know, that's an exile song. That's an, and, and the truth is this. We don't belong here. We don't belong here. Every summer, pretty much when I was growing up, pack up our van, and we'd go to Texas. My mom and my dad were born there. Uh, my sisters were born there. At the time, I was the only one in our entire family that wasn't born in Texas. I was born in New Jersey. My dad came here for a couple years to work for a mobile oil company, and he was here. I was born. And so we'd go down south, and everybody had a southern accent. And, I mean, they really had a southern accent. I mean, my, my grandmother was from a little town called Kuntz. And I didn't, it's really Kuntz. That's how she said it. And, and they would say, Lance, it's good to see you. Uh, that, you think I'm exaggerating. I'm, I'm really underplaying it. I mean, their accent was so strong. And, and, and then I spoke like I was from New Jersey because we lived in Ohio. I didn't, really didn't have an accent. And so everybody was winging it and slinging it all over the place. And not me. And so I had one of my relatives I didn't know very well come up to me and said, you're not from around here, are you? And I said, no. He goes, you know what I've come to conclude? I go, what? He goes, you're a Yankee. <laughs> now, I thought that was a New York Yankee fan or something. And my dad had to tell me, no, son, you're from the north. You're not from here. And I go, I get it. And the guy was really telling me, you don't really belong here, do you? I go, I don't. I really don't. See, that's how, that's how we are to see ourselves. We are exiles. We are different. Not odd different, I say often, but God different. See, it's our spiritual accent that sets us apart. And the way that we talk and how people hear us and the, and the convictions that we hold and the way that we live our lives. See, people ought to be surprised if we fit in. We should be surprised. If you ever read the rest of 1 Peter, when it comes to chapter 4, he's going to tell them, hey, you know what? You used to do all these things and be all of this sinful lifestyle that you lived. And he says, and now these people that you used to hang around with in chapter 4, verses 2, he says, they're surprised that you don't live that way anymore. Surprised. See, exiles, we don't live like we used to. We don't live like the people around us. And what ought to be true when they see you at school, is it? What ought to be true at your job and the way that you do it? What ought to be true in your marriage and how your kids are raised is they're surprised that you don't do that. They're surprised. I've had so many people tell you, you go to church how many times a week? 
See, it ought to be a surprise. Why? Because we're exiles. We ultimately do not belong here. So with that framework, see, here's what God says. You be holy. You be separate. You be different. And he's not just telling you, hey, this is who you are, but do something completely contrary. No, he's saying this. You are my different people. Now, in your context and where you live, I want you to live that way. So at your work, do you stand out because you do an excellent job in all that you do because people know that you're a Christian? See, do you cut corners? Do you lie a little bit to make yourself look better on your resume? See, are you the guy or the girl that goes out with everybody for drinks after work and talks like they do, laugh at their jokes, slander the boss behind his back because you can't stand some of the things he says or does? Do you gossip about other coworkers and join in that kind of stuff? Or are you different? And they know that you're different. See, perhaps you're a younger person and you're at school. Do young people at your school, do they know that you're different? Do they know that you're not like them? See, a lot of people today, especially you get into college, you know what? Grades are everything. And let me ask you this. Do they think in your life, are grades everything or is God everything? Grades are important, but you know what? God's first. Do they know that about you? You know, and a lot of people, young people today, hey, girls or guys, they're everything. What do they think when they see you? Are guys and girls everything or is God everything to you? See, are people surprised? that you're different? Do they even know that you're different? Maybe the surprise isn't there because you're the same as them. And I've said too many times, and probably, let me say it again, we make a difference when we are different. Not strange different, but sanctified different. So let me tell you this this morning. Holiness is living God different in a God indifferent world. Let me say it again. Holiness is living God different in a God indifferent world world. So let me unpack that this morning for a few minutes and tell you how God is holy people we ought to live or we ought to be different. First of all, we think differently. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. Therefore, and, and, and I'm going to read this verse for you. Look at the three cognitive terms about your mind. Verse 13 and 14. Therefore, first one, preparing your minds for action. See that? Be, second one, be sober-minded. Verse 14, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of, passions of your former ignorance. Those are three mind terms, how you think terms. See, Peter wants his readers to understand that he want, God wants them to live a wholly different life. So where does he start? What is the basis? What's the bottom line? Here's what it is. We think differently as Christians. Certainly, if you read the Bible, you'll know there's more to being a Christian and being holy than how you think. But I can tell you this, it's certainly not less than that. So let me lay it out for you straight. You cannot be holy as God is holy unless your mind totally belongs to God. Do you understand that? You cannot be holy unless your mind totally belongs to God. And Peter commands it this way. And this is King James, right? This is the old way. Gird up your loins. Gird up the loins of your mind. Back in, you know, Bible times, the Greeks and Romans would wear long robes. And so you'd wear long robes. But if you wanted to do anything 
strenuous. You wanted to run. You wanted to work. You had to fight someone in a military battle. You always wore a belt around your waist. And so if they wanted to do anything that they was going to take action, they would take up and fold up their robes, and they would pull them up, and they'd tuck them into their girdle or, or the waistband around their waist, and then they'd be ready for action. That's the analogy that Peter uses about how we should think through holiness. In fact, that's what the word means. Dianoia. It means through, think. Literally, think through things. Here's what is true of Christians. We are people who use our mind. We do, cults are going to tell you this. Don't read the Bible for yourself. Just listen to your leader and do exactly what he says and don't think for yourself. That's what cults do. We're not a cult. We are a church. And when God saves you, he redeems all of you, including your mind and how you think. And so here's what Peter says. If you want to be holy as God is holy, the first thing you do is not just gird up your loins. Notice what he says. The loins of your mind. And it would be this, and, and the ESV has it right. Prepare your mind for action. Set your mind to think. How is it that in Hamilton and Trent and the surrounding area, how can I live holy in this area and the things that I face in my life? At our house, very often when we were growing up, if not still today, we argue and debate things and ask about this. And if you're a nurse and you have to be able to say, hey, you've got to take someone's pronoun down. Are you going to call them that pronoun today? And what are you going to do about that? My daughter's a nurse. And what if you go to the work like my sister does and they want to hang um, things on your door, the rainbow, and you, gotta, you, know, you celebrate this or you might lose your job. Well, what are you going to do? Well, you have to say, I have to think through those things in our culture. And that's what the word means. To be ready to think through, to rationally and logically, to my fullest capabilities, think through things spiritually in my life. I'm a fan of Sherlock Holmes. I don't know if you have read the books. There's a lot of them. And uh, I used to live in London. I went to find 220, uh, 220B Baker Street or 22 Baker Street, and there's a bank there. It's a fictional address. He really doesn't, never had a home. It was never a place he was. But it was Sherlock Holmes supposedly lived there. And if you ever read or, or the books or seen the movies, you'll know that he's known for being the thinker. And for him, it's elementary, my dear Watson, he would say, because to him it was easy. He had to think through things. But it's amazing when you read the books and watch the movies because he'll describe the scene. And you, In fact, if you watch the movie, you'll see everything that's going on. And then he'll come up with these deductions and you go, I never saw that. And how did he see that? And how did he come to that conclusion? You know why? Sherlock Holmes has trained his mind to see things and think things that other people have not. And you might say, well, maybe I'm more like a spiritual Watson than Sherlock Holmes. But here's what he's saying to you. Can I say it in our Be a Sherlock, a spiritual Sherlock Holmes. Be someone who thinks through the details of it, what you're going through in your life, what it's like at your job, how you're going to face it in this world in which you live. See, let me give you an example. Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount anxiety. Anyone ever struggle with anxiety here? I'm sure it's never a problem with anybody. And he says that you, you know, anxious, you can't anxious three times. Three times he says, don't be anxious. He said, well, thank you very much. How can I command that feeling? Well, here's what he does. You know how you control those things? Your mind. What's our, in verse 26 and verse 28 of Matthew 6, here what, here's what Jesus says about anxiety. I want you to think about two things. 
When you're anxious and you feel life's out of control and you're nervous and you're worried and you don't know where to turn and you don't know how things are going to turn out, if you're there this morning, listen to this. He says, I want you to consider the birds. You say, what? Yeah, the birds. You're not going to hear that in Psychology 101. But here's what Jesus says. Think through the birds. They don't go out and plant a field. They don't have a harvest. They don't do anything. But it says God takes care of them. He says, think about them. And then he says, if that's not enough, verse 28, think about the flowers. The flowers don't toil and spin. They don't do anything. He says, but Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And so here's what he says. You know how you get past anxiety? You don't stop thinking. You start thinking. You think about God as your creator. You think about God and how he provides for every living creature in this world, the psalmist says, and how he can take care of them, and they don't do anything. He says, how much more value are you? You see what he's thinking? See, think from the greater to the, le- see, the lesser to the greater. If God takes care of little flowers and takes care of birds and they're not even created in his image, don't you think he'll take care of you? So here's what you ought to say next time you face anxiety and you're getting so worried, so nervous, and you can't get to sleep and you're so upset and stressed out. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? See, that's why he says, oh, you of little faith. You say, well, see, there's the answer, Pastor Walker. It's my faith. You know what your faith is built off of? Thinking. My faith is strong when I think the right things about my God and his promises and his power and his wisdom and his strength. See, anxiety happens when I stop thinking about God. Let me give you another example. Quitting. You ever want to throw in the white towel? Wave the white flag. You ever want to give up? Maybe on your marriage, trying to reach people, trying to talk sense into people. You ever get tired? You want to quit and just go and do something else easier? You don't want to have the pressure and stress anymore? Jesus was coming to the last week of his life. He knew that his best friends were going to forsake him, that Judas that he poured his life into would actually betray him, and his own people, not the Romans ultimately, but his own people would be the one who would initiate his crucifixion. And he knew all the suffering, and he knew all the pain and the agony that it would cause him. And three times in the passage, the Passion narrative, John 13, 3 and 4, John 18, 4, and 19, 28, it says this, Jesus knowing. So the Bible says the first one, Jesus is at the Last Supper, he's with the disciples, and it says, knowing everything that was going to happen to him, and the Father had given everything into his hand, he got up from the table and took a towel and some water and started washing their feet. Now, if you, it was you and me, and you knew everything that was going to happen to you and how awful it was going to be, and the guys around the table would be of no help, would you get up and wash their feet? You would want to quit. You want to throw in the towel. You're not getting up and washing their feet. You're not going to, in 18.4 it says, Judas is coming down the hill, three to five hundred soldiers. They all have lamps. And it says, my betrayer is at hand. Let's go and meet him. Who does that? He didn't run. He didn't quit. He gets up and runs to it. How do you do that? You know why? Jesus said, let me tell you what I'm thinking. I'm thinking about my father's plan. I'm thinking about my father's sovereignty. I'm thinking about my father's power. I'm thinking that my father's got it all under control. Therefore, I don't have to live by my feelings. You see what I'm saying? See, as Christians, here's what makes us different. Here's what makes us holy. We think differently. So he goes on. If that's not enough, 
he's going to build on. He says, therefore, be sober-minded. Do you see it in the verse? Be sober-minded. It means you're not drunk. Sober means you're not intoxicated. Have you ever been somewhere where you've seen someone who is totally drunk? They're not clear thinkers. They say things and they do things that they look back and regret. Sometimes they can't take them back. They have lost control of how they think because they are intoxicated and under the influence of alcohol. Here's what Peter's saying. Listen, if you're going to live holy, you can't be intoxicated with the way the world thinks. And that is the danger, isn't it, for our children today? Have you figured that out yet? That your young people are under the influence. If you're not careful because of social media and internet and TV and whatever school they might go to, listen, they are under the influence of ways that are totally antithetical to God. And if you don't think that impacts their lives, you're mistaken, horribly mistaken. And here's what he says. You want to live a holy life? You want to maintain the difference I've called you to? You have to think soberly. You can't allow yourself to be intoxicated. So it does matter what you watch and the books that you read and the videos that you look at and the social media you're on and how you use your phone. All of it matters. Why? Because if you're going to be sober and discipline your mind and be under the control of truth, you're going to have to learn to think differently. And Peter says, well, how do I know if that's happening? Look at the verse again, verse 13. Set your hope fully. See that? Your hope is connected to your holiness. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Set your hope fully for the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Three times, verse 5, 7, actually 4, 12 and 13, all talks about Jesus being revealed, Jesus coming back. See what exiles have? Can I tell you this? This is the measurement, right? Ready? Here's how exiles think. People who don't have this world as their permanent home. Heaven is their permanent home. So if, let me tell you this. If earth is your hope, and you're here this morning, and your greatest hope and your greatest dream and aspiration are things that you can get and have here, then you will have a earthly holiness at best. You will live for now. But if your holiness is connected to a hope that's in the future, a hope that is not found on earth, but one that is found in heaven, see, where your hope is will determine your holiness. And this is what he says. We are not, Christians do not think that I have to have it all now. I don't have to have peace now. I don't have to have comfort. I don't have to have it my way now. I don't have to win everything now. See, but that's the way the world thinks. I got to have this house, this car. I got to have this job, make this money, have this career. I got to have this kind of life, and I have to have it now. All the pleasures and things the American dream has to offer. See, I got to have it now. See, that's not the way exiles think. Because this isn't their home. They don't live here. They don't go for citizenship spiritually because they already have one and it's in heaven. And so he says, here's how we think differently. We value things differently. We value future over the present. We value later over now. We value eternal over the temporal. But he wants to remind us of something that's not how you always thought. And that's the third cognitive term in verse 14. Do you see it? Don't be conformed to the passions of your, notice the two words, former ignorance. 
The word former is all throughout the New Testament, five or six times, and it always means previous patterns. In other words, there used to be a way that you were thinking. You used to think, listen, that the desires of the flesh and pleasures and sexuality and, and money and th- all that was really where it was at, and I needed to get that, and that's where you really are after. He says, that's how you used to think. But when you were born again, Peter says, 1-3, when you changed and you met Jesus and he came into your life, now you think differently. And he calls it former ignorance. Great comparison. He says earlier, gird up your mind. And the word mind is this Greek word is the same as ignorance. And the only difference between the two words is the prefix. The first one means to think through, and the second one means no thinking at all. In other words, before you were a Christian, you never thought about eternal things. You never thought about whether it pleased God. You never thought of how your career could serve him. You you, you didn't think about any of those things. You were no thinking. That's what you did. Are you still doing that? When you sit down and think about your future and what you're going to do and how you're going to use it, are you still thinking like practical atheists do? Or God's really not in it? Here's what he says. We're different than that. See, we've changed our mind. Isn't that what repentance is? Repentance is my mind has been changed. Can I tell you that? That's not just a one-time event. It's a lifestyle change. And it shows up most evident or most prominently in the hope that you have. Because holiness is simply living out your hope in everyday affairs of your life. So number one, we think differently. Don't get scared, the two X2 are shorter. Number two, we live differently. Verse 14 says, as obedient children. Obedient is used three times in chapter one, verse two, 14, and 22. Now listen, what kind of obedience is this? Well, it's an inside-out obedience. It's an obedience of a child. It's a submissive obedience. It's an obedience that we live because God has changed us on our minds on the inside. Now, he says, based on the change of how you think, here's what I want you to live. Can I tell you this? Biblical Christian holiness is an integration of how you think and how you will all at the same time. See, your will is tied to how you think. It's not just about rules. It's about a relationship. So he says, as obedient children, not obedient slaves, not obedient employers, but obedient children. And that's why children is used in verse 14. And he says, if you call on the father in verse 17. Why? Because father and child, that's a relationship, see? You've been changed on the inside. So when God says, be holy, and I don't want you to do these things, but I do want you to do these, you don't gripe and complain like your kids do when you tell them to go clean their room. Right? You want to come. And I always tell people, we have Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night services. I don't know if I, you know, I really think I should come. You know what? You should come to Sunday night and be in a small group. You should. You should come Wednesday night. Why? Because it'll make you more spiritual. No. Because you're a legalist, Pastor Walker, and if I don't come, that means I'm not a very good Christian. Not at all. You know why? Because you've been changed. Because you delight in it. Obedient child, because I have a relationship with him. And I want to be where he is. I want to be with his people. You know why? That's why. 
So holiness is not only a matter of my mind, it is a matter of my will. It's an inside-out thing. And more than anything else, can you say this? Listen, more than anything else might say, Pastor Walker, I need to be changed from the inside out. And can I tell you this? If you can't honestly say that today, see, if you can't honestly say that, you really don't know yourself. Mike Wallace, who's on the news, um, he interviewed a guy by the name of Yahil Denur many years ago. And Denur was a witness against Adolf Eichmann, who was part of Hitler's regime of the Third Reich back in 1961. He had this interview. And he interviewed him because he was a uh, concentration camp survivor. At the time when he was in the concentration camp with his family and friends and, and loved ones, he was about 11 years old. Many, many years had passed. And so now Mike Wallace was interviewing him, looking back on what he was doing in that trial. So they showed a film clip of him when he first walked in the room and for the first time since the war had taken, Adolf Eichmann was sitting over there. And he walked into the room and it was a very dramatic moment. And when he saw Adolf Eichmann for the first time in all those years, he began to cry and sob uncontrollably. And he, it was so devastating to him emotionally that he fainted and collapsed on the floor of the courtroom. Of course, there was an uproar. They had the gavel out trying to keep people in their seats, and it had to be postponed. And so he shows uh, Mr. Denure that video clip. He goes, I got to ask you, all those years looking back, he says, why did you collapse on the floor? He said, what did you feel at the moment? Why were you so overwhelmed, overpowered? What was it? Was it hatred for a man that had most of your family and all your friends killed in that concentration camp? Was it the fear of being in the presence of someone that was so wicked and evil? Was it the sud suddenly were you getting flashbacks of all the things that happened to you at the hand of this man in the concentration camp when you were a young boy? And Denur said this, actually, it was none of those things. He said, when I walked in the courtroom that day and saw Adolf Eichmann, I suddenly realized he was not a demon nor a superman, but he was an ordinary human being exactly like me. And suddenly I became terrified about myself because I saw in me the capability to do what he could do because I hated him so much. You see, you know what he's teaching us? That you have to look at yourself. See, he wasn't deceived about himself. He knew, walking in that courtroom, saying, Adolf Eichmann, you know what the greatest need of his life was? To be changed on the inside. People who are holy, that as God is holy, they have come to the place in their lives where they recognize this, that the greatest need of our life is to be changed from the inside out. And that's why the verse goes on to say this, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Not just don't do bad acts. Don't have the same desires you used to have. Be different on the inside. And when you're different on the inside, here's what he said, you're going to live differently. And how will that look when your desires and your passions have changed? Verses 15 and 16 say this, in all of your conduct, be holy, for I am holy in all of your conduct. Do you see that holiness is comprehensive? 
The word conduct is used six times in 1 Peter. It means a lifestyle, a behavior change. It's a way of living. It's an integration of everything into your life. So what kind of obedience is this? It's an inside-out obedience. And what does it look like? Have you ever seen the movie Abraham? And it comes time where Abraham in the movie takes Isaac to Mount Moriah, and they're going up the hill, and finally Isaac comes to his mind, I'm the sacrifice. (laughs) There's no animal. I'm it. And he binds him to the sacrifice, puts the wood on the altar, and before he is to slit his throat, literally, his son Isaac looks to his father Abraham and says this, is there anything that you would not sacrifice for him, meaning God? And his answer was, no, nothing. That's comprehensive holiness. That's the kind of obedience that God says, I'm looking for. That there isn't things in your life. See, it's not that, God, you have every area of my life but this little room on the corner, this little closet over here. See, that's still mine. See, all of us, if we're honest, we have Isaacs, don't we? Things that we love, things that we're holding on to. God, you can have all of this and this big part of my life, but this one little area of my life over here, you really can't touch that. That's mine. And the things I watch and look at that nobody else knows, see, that's still my stuff. And the way I have my money and what I'm going to do with my retirement, hey, God, you got all this, but you can't touch that part. My attitude toward this and, and whatever it is, see, we're holding out on God. There are parts of our, and here's what God says, in all of your conduct, all of it, every area of my life. See, we live differently. Why? We're exiles. We're exiles. Our home is in heaven. Everything on this earth is up for grabs because it's all God's. Lastly, thirdly, we feel differently. Verse 17 says, conduct yourselves in fear throughout the time of your exile. How does God want you as exiles to live the rest of your life from this day forward in fear? You know what that means? Worship and trust. Sacrifice, obedience, the end of the Abraham story in Genesis twenty-two twelve. here's what it says. God sees that Abraham was willing to kill his own son. Romans 4 tells us that he believed that God would raise him from the dead if that was necessary. So he takes the knife out and is about to kill his own son like he would a sacrificial animal. And God says, Abraham, Abraham, and he stops. And he, listen to this. Here's what God says. And now I know that you fear me. What does he mean by that? Now I know. Did God not in his omniscience know it before? Absolutely he did. God knew what Abraham was going to do, and he knew that Abraham feared him. But here's what God likes. God likes it to be experienced physically. He likes to see it in real life choices. And it's not enough in your life to come to church and say, God, I obey you. God, I love you. God, I fear you. God, I love you. No, he wants to say, show me. Abraham, show me the comprehensive conduct you're going to have. Show me how much you fear me. Show me that you worship me and adore me and value me supremely in the effect. Show me by the choices that you make. And that's what Peter's saying. Can you do that? And he says, if not, let me tell you, get, let me give you a motivation and let me be done with this. This whole thing started in Leviticus. Let's end it there. And the Bible says in this, knowing that you are not, verse 18, knowing that you were not ransomed, redeemed, bought out of slavery. You know, when you were sold off into sin, here's what God did. He sent his son 
to redeem you, to buy you out of the slave market of sin. You are not redeemed, he says. If you think that God just paid a high price in currency and finances, you're wrong. You know what God's commitment to your holiness took? His son's blood. Precious blood. Valuable blood. He says, as a lamb. See, now he's talking Leviticus. Go look up in Leviticus without blemish. The phrase used here, 18 times, it's always talking about sacrificial animals. God says, I didn't just sacrifice an animal. I gave my son. Abraham almost did. I really did. (laughs) I gave my son. He shed his precious blood. See, God was that committed to making you holy when you were not holy. Can you be committed in response to that? God says, here's how committed I am. Look at Jesus on the cross. Now let me ask you, how committed are you? How committed are you to your holiness in every area of your life? See, this is how God different looks like. It looks like an obedience that sacrifice. It looks like obedience that counts the cost. And here's what he says. I gave my son as the lamb of God. He shed his blood for you. He fulfilled the Levitical sacrifice that you never could. Now, what I'm asking you is to be committed to your holiness as I am. So are you? Can you say, God, here's who I am, and here's who I will be. I will be holy as you are holy by your grace and for your glory. Perhaps this could be, I like to call it, a Moses moment for you this morning. When Moses understood how holy God was, here's what God says to him. Take your sandals from off your feet. You are standing on holy ground. See, you're on holy ground this morning and God brought you here for maybe this is your Moses moment where God's speaking to you and say, God, I finally realize what it means for you to be holy. Now let me be moved by my holy Savior, Jesus, and be as committed to my holiness for him as he was for me. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for Jesus, our holiness. He has fulfilled the Levitical law for us. He shed his precious blood. Father, I pray in response to it, in response to it, that we would want to, that we would delight in, that we would take great pleasure in, thinking through ways, I mean, detailed ways, in our schedule, in our priorities, in our choices, in the things we look at and watch and how we dress and how we use our money, that we would take joy in thinking through things logically and theologically about how to live holy lives. You've given us minds and you've given us wills. May they be submitted to you completely, comprehensively, that we might be holy as you are holy. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.